I would like to invite everyone to open uh, your Bibles with us to the book of Genesis. Uh, for those of you who um, may not have been following along, we're, we are going through the book of Genesis together. Uh, and we're, today brings us to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, during World War II, uh, the Germans concocted a, a plan, a really actually ingenious plan, to weaken their British enemies. It was called the Bernard Project, named after this guy named Bernard Kruger. Uh, and what Kruger planned was to make a great number of, of counterfeit British pounds. Uh, right, The British dollar is called a pound, for those of you who don't know. Uh, it's their money. And, and so make lots of counterfeit pounds and drop it over uh, Great Britain. The plan was to pump so much counterfeit money into the British economy that it would weaken the economy by driving up prices, weakening the pound, and triggering inflation. Of course, uh, part of their plan was to recruit Jews to do their dirty work. So they recruited Jews from the concentration camps who would do all of this work of making counterfeits. Fortunately, the Jews worked at such a deliberately slow pace uh, that the plan never hatched. So uh, during the course of time that they were making these counterfeits, the Germans lost air control over uh, Britain, and then, then they had the Russians uh, to their east to worry about. So the plan never hatched. But if the Bernard Project had succeeded, the story would be very different. Not only would there have been more chaos and destruction in Britain, but then the last defenses would have caved to Germany. In fact, the, the world as we know it and democracy as we know it could have been decided by counterfeits. There's lots of different kinds of faith out there, and unfortunately, many of them are counterfeits. You might hear someone say, I'm a person of faith. Uh, there's that self-help kind. Uh, just have faith in yourself. There's also what I like to call like a coffee mug faith. Uh, it's the kind of expressions of faith uh, that you would normally find like on a coffee mug. Uh, my favorite uh, says, my favorite as in it's uh, the most ridiculous, is if you lead a good life, say your prayers and go to church, when you die, you will go to Missouri. Sorry to say, but that's an expression of faith and it's counterfeit. We must be sure that the faith we have is authentic faith. If we go through life with a counterfeit faith, it will lead to misery, ineffectiveness, and eventually destruction. And as we take a sustained look at Abram's life, we see what faith looks like. God promised Abraham, right, that all-important promise in Genesis chapter 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Faith is the channel by which we participate in those blessings, right? Those blessings don't just come haphazardly. They come through a specific channel, and that is by sharing the faith of Abraham. If you don't have faith, or if you have a counterfeit faith, you're not only cut off from that blessing, but you're headed for destruction. We need a specific kind of faith. Even the Gospel of John, that great Gospel where we have John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, 
that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life teaches us that it's not just any kind of belief that saves. In fact, John takes great pains to show us it's a specific kind of faith. This is what we see in Abram's life in in chapter 15. He demonstrates a faith in God that whoever shares the faith of Abraham has access to the God of Abraham. So here's today's sermon. A right relationship with God only happens through faith that is derived from the Word of God. A right relationship with God only happens through faith that is derived from the Word of God. Not on our terms. Counter, not a counterfeit faith, but God's terms. A true faith. I, I actually had today's text on PowerPoint for you today that you could follow along, but uh, just as I mistake carnations for roses, I totally forgot my uh, 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 slides at home, so you'll follow along in your own Bible or or follow along. We're going to read all of chapter 15 today, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. For this chapter, the structure alternates around the themes of offspring and land. Alright, so in verses 1 to 6, the focus is on offspring. In verses 7 to 11, the focus is on land. 12 to 16, the focus is back on offspring. And finally, 17 to 21, the focus is on land. 
the first two appear as like this question and answer promise kind of way, and the last two appear as prophecies or visions. And the important thing to note here is that they give us an opportunity to see faith at work. In verse 6, explicitly, we're told, and Abram believed the Lord. In other words, Abram had faith in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This verse right here is a window for, for us to see that all of this should be interpreted through the window of this belief, this faith. And in verses 1 to 6, the first element of faith is revealed. Faith receives God's righteousness. In verse 1, God appears to Abram to say this, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Some translations say it a little bit different, but, but coming fresh off the heels of battle, right? In verse 14, Abram is in battle. God is promising Abram that he will protect him in case the enemies wish to retaliate, right? So I am your shield, Abram. And God is promising that Abram will have his reward because remember, Abram fights these kings. The evil king of Sodom says, here, take this plunder, and Abram denies it. So Abram denies riches. And so, so uh, God is promising Abram reward. It, it's like, right, being a parent, uh, and, and, and you discipline your kid maybe, and, and afterwards, you know, uh, whatever you do, you, you comfort them and reaffirm them and saying like, Look, you don't have to be afraid. I love you. I'm doing this for your good. God is essentially promising Abram his abiding presence. Like, they're in relationship. That's what this is all about. He's comforting Abram, and he's affirming his relationship with Abram. Just like a parent would do. And right here, if you're in a, uh, an Israelite reading this, right, and you read... That Abram is in this relationship with God, the question should be, how can I be sure I'm in a relationship with this God? The wrong answer would be to simply assume that I'm the same family as Abram. Therefore, I'm in a right relationship with God. That's the, the wrong answer. This kind of thinking mistakes our standards uh, uh, for right with what God defines as right. And, and that's the precise danger. Listen, this is the danger. That we think we are righteous based on anything we bring to the table. For the Israelites, they thought that bringing their Jewish descent to the table made them right. It, it could be a clean track record. Right? You've never gotten anything dirty or criminal. It, it could be comparing yourself to others. So... Another great danger that the Israelites faced in Scripture was comparing themselves to Gentiles. At least I'm not a Gentile. Uh, Jewish men, right? Being thankful that they're not women. Right? So they think they have something they can bring to the table. Today, that might be comparable to saying, like, at least I'm not a Democrat, right? We might receive a, a, a certain level of righteousness from thinking that way. Could be you, you've gone to church your whole life. Look at this, God. Whatever the case may be, we're defining righteousness by our own standards and not by God's standards. In fact, we are poised to receive God's righteousness when we realize we have nothing to bring to the table but our own emptiness and destitution. This is exactly what Abram says. Like God's like, 
don't worry, Abram, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. And, and Abram says, verses 2 and 3, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. It's when Abram feels his own emptiness that he's ready to receive what God will do. Verse 5, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Only when Abram has nothing to bring to the table but his own lack and his own emptiness and his own brokenness is he in a position to trust God to do everything for him. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's faith makes God the primary actor to accomplish what Abram could not. That's what faith does. Faith makes God the primary actor to accomplish what we can't. That's why faith must be defined according to God's standards because it is in a specific God that we place our faith. Not just any old God. Not even like man upstairs God. But the covenant creator God who is Father, Spirit, and Son. As Paul writes about Abram's faith in Romans 4, Abram is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And, and this is what he says about God. This is the kind of God that Abram believed in. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. It's a, a specific God. It's in receiving the promise that God will make of Abraham when he cannot, what he cannot make of himself and trusting in it that Abram was counted righteous. And it's the same for us. Righteousness does not come from our works because our works cannot make us righteous. Think of the most righteous thing that you can do. Praying cannot make you righteous. Going to church cannot make you righteous. Reading your Bible cannot make you righteous. Even trying to repent of sin cannot make you righteous. Faith receives the gift of what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Faith receives the gift of only what God can do. So let me ask you, and you need to ask yourself honestly, what are you trusting in to make yourself righteous with God? What are, you, what are you trusting in? Are you a good person? Have you made a, a good name for yourself? You think you're, you're smarter than most people? Or are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your righteousness? The difference is between counterfeit faith and true faith. Faith receives God's righteousness. There's this parable. It's a modern parable. Jesus never told it. Um, but it's called, it's called the parable of the uh, drowning man. And this drowning man was a really, uh, he had a lot of faith. Uh, one day his town floods. Okay. And he's, he's hanging on for dear life. Someone comes by in a boat. Hey, come get in the boat. I'm going to rescue you. And, he, and the man replies, no, I have faith. God will rescue me. The guy, boat leaves. 
Another boat comes along. Hey, get in the boat. I'm going to rescue you. The guy replies, no, I have faith. God will rescue me. Eventually the man dies and he gets to heaven. And then, God, why didn't you rescue me? And God's like, I sent you boats. It's a funny story, but it shows us a common misconception about faith that faith is doing nothing. Right? Faith means we don't do anything. In reality, though, biblical faith propels us to action. Specifically, if, if faith is true faith, it will lead to active obedience. This brings us to the second element. Faith keeps God's commands. In verse 7, uh, God promises, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God's making this promise. Uh, you will possess the land of Canaan. Uh, and in the same way that Abram... I don't, how am I going to have all these offspring? I don't, I don't have a son yet. He, he asks, he doesn't know how he's going to get this land. Verse 8, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And, and this shows great humility on Abram's part. Right? Remember, in the last chapter, he not just defeated one king, but four. Not just one nation, but, but, but four nations. He, he very well could trust in his own ability. He could take what he did and say, I actually have really good skills as a warrior. I'm actually a really good strategist. But he doesn't assume that. He, he knows his weakness. He knows that he is nothing apart from God. In, in, in this part, God doesn't answer Abram's question. In fact, something really sketchy happens. Uh, God tells Abram to bring all these animals. A heifer, three years old. Uh, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And, and so remember, this is, this is happening before God gives the law to Moses. But any good Israelite re- reading this would notice something about these animals. They're clean animals, right? Clean animals, right, are, are acceptable for sacrifice and worship. Unclean prevents you from, from worshiping and sacrifice. So... What we're seeing here isn't just a simple suggestion. Hey, just bring, bring me some animals. It's a divine command. A matter of utmost obedience. If you read the Old Testament, you see what happens when people take God's commands lightly. It's not good. When we were, me and Mal were at the beach earlier this year, I could go out and ride the sailboat, flip it over however many times I want to without consequence. And I did. I flipped it over two times. Uh, and so it's no big deal. Stakes weren't that high. It would be another thing entirely if I took that little sailboat out into shark-infested waters and flipped it over. The stakes are much higher, and so I'm going to be sure, if I'm an idiot and I take it out anyway, that I'm going to sail it correctly. This is a high command here with high stakes that demands utmost obedience. So, so God doesn't answer Abram's question. How am I to know to possess it? Well, Abram, bring me these animals. And not only does he give this command to Abram, he makes Abram wait. Uh, <laughs> Abram has to wait so long, he has to fight off birds from getting to these carcasses. Well, this is a funny picture, isn't it? Like It's like... It, you know, I, I, I could tell you, okay, I, I went home and I had to fill up on gas all the way. It's like, well... Why are you telling us about these birds? 
we sing the song, Father Abraham, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. But he's, he's basically being a scarecrow right here. Kind of funny. But it does show Abram's consistency in his obedience. These are unclean birds trying to get to the clean sacrifice. And it shows us he's zealous to keep God's commands. Nothing indicates the character of our hearts like the nature of our obedience in and out of season. In season of abundance and season of lack. This was the Israelites' problem. In season of lack, when they're oppressed, they cry out to God, God rescue us! And He does, but guess what? When things uh, would get uh, good again, they would just revert back to their old ways and forget God. So what we see with the Israelites' Uh, the character of their heart was not a trajectory toward God, but a trajectory toward sin. True faith keeps God's commands even when we don't feel like it. Proverbs says that, that blessed is the man who keeps the law when there's no prophecy or vision, meaning blessed is the man who keeps, keeps the, God's commands even when it's very difficult to. Even when we don't get an answer. I mentioned earlier, the, uh, John, right? He's the most eager to get us to believe. That's all he wants. That you may believe that Jesus is the Son, but he's also eager to show us the nature of that belief. And he writes in 1 John, listen, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So this shows us that that faith is more than an acknowledgement. It's more than just a mental assent. It's more than just agreeing that God is good, that his word is true. Faith keeps God's commands. Third element of a true faith is similar. Faith submits to God's will. Uh, Abram is still waiting, right, in, in verses 12 to 16. He's waiting on something to happen with these carcasses, and it turns dark again, and he, he falls asleep. It's here that God appears to him in a vision and, and gives Abram some very unsavory news, actually. His descendants will be slaves, and they will be in that condition for 400 years. This does not sound like the great nation that God had originally promised. Listen, if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, that stock you have in Andy's ice cream, I don't even know if they're a publicly traded company, but let's pretend, that stock you have in Andy's ice cream, that's going to become a great fortune one day. Great news. And then, later on, they come up and say, hey, yes, it will become a great fortune, but first, Abrams, or, sorry, Andy's will go out, will go bankrupt. And, and if you're that guy with stock in Andes, you have two questions. One, why am I getting stock advice from a lunatic? Uh, and second, great fortunes don't happen through bankruptcy. Similar, if you're Abram, you don't think great nations don't happen through slavery. Much less 400 years of it. No, no, in fact, great nations make other people their slaves. Slavery is, is the opposite of a great nation. He doesn't even have a son yet, and he's told that his children would become slaves. 
God does tell Abram that he will deliver them and bring them back. But in addition to asking Abram Abram to wait, God is asking Abram to accept a very hard truth. Listen, God is a very good promise-keeping God. He hears our prayers with eagerness and attentiveness. He answers our requests with the heart of a loving and wise father. But absorb this truth. God is not a genie. Faith is not believing God gives us what we want. It's not believing He gives us what we want when we want. And it's not believing He'll give us what we want when we want how we want it. Faith is asking honestly of God and accepting from His hand what He chooses to give. Yeah, you can cry out your heart with all honesty to God. You can express your sins, your sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sinful desires, how badly you want something, how much you think you need it, how badly you want Him to give it to you. You can express all of those things, but the second half of that is accepting what He chooses to give or even withhold. Faith submits to God's will even when we don't necessarily like what God has for us. Listen, Israel had to be slaves for 400 years before they could become a great nation. Before Moses became a prophet and the leader of God's people, he had to become an obscure shepherd for 40 years in the desert. Before Joseph could become a prince and save thousands of people, he submits to life as a prisoner. Before David become king over Israel, he lives a life of being a shepherd for 25-30 years. Before Jesus, the actual Son of God, could become His ministry, He spends 30 years building tables and chairs. The training ground for greatness happens when we submit to God's plan for humility. Because in God's sight, humility is greatness. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was uh, up and coming, one of the world's best doctors in in Britain, in London at the time, but um, he gave up all that to become a pastor. And he's now a world-famous pastor, probably the greatest uh, preacher of the last century. But before he became that, he served uh, for around a decade in a little town called Aberavon in Wales. A population of only about 5,000 people. It's the training ground. And it's hard. It's not easy. But counterfeit faith is only concerned with, with the warm fuzzies, right? When it's easy or comfortable. Counterfeit is fine with a God who forgives us of everything, but who never really demands us of, of anything. True faith submits to God's will in all circumstances, for all circumstances. Look, and you can even object. You can say, God, I don't like this. <laughs> so It's okay to say, God, I don't want this. But I, I trust in you. I, I submit to you. Don't get me wrong. Nothing God gives is bad or, or mistimed. Everything He gives is good. His timing is impeccable. 
might struggle to see it a lot, but it is. He's wise. This is why, lastly, faith depends on God's work. Now, if you're wondering why Abram, God's like, bring me these animals, and Abram's like, okay, and he cuts them all in half. All right, okay. If you're wondering why that's happening, you were told right here. So here's the thing that we need to know about this culture that's way different from ours. Oaths and covenants were a big deal. Right? You don't make them unless you're willing to die for it. They were such a big deal that they would take an animal, this is common practice, usually a cow, and they would split it in two. They would cut it in half. All right? and you can read about this in Jeremiah 34. Same thing happens. And, and to make the covenant, both parties pass through, uh, through the blood, through in between the pieces of the animal. And they would say, if I fail to keep my end of this covenant, may I become like this animal. May I become split in two. Not your average pinky promise. Except, in this instance, there's the two parties are God and Abram, and Abram doesn't pass through it. Who does? God passes through. The reason that God appears as a smoking pot and a flaming torch is because that's how He so often reveals Himself in the Old Testament. A flaming bush. A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud smoke on Mount Sinai. So what Abram is seeing is that in this covenant ritual, God is obligating Himself. Not just to uphold His part, but to uphold the human part as well. A guy named Ray Vanderlaan wrote beautifully, What an awesome God we have. What incredible love He has for His creatures. Think of it. Almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God in all His power and majesty expressed His love that personally. When He walked in the dust of the desert and through the blood of the animals Abram had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abram, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, He did it for us. At that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on His Son Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? God not only promising to uphold His part, but ensuring that His covenant partners, humanity, would keep theirs. Faith that depends on something other than the work of Christ is not, is not faith. That's, that's what we call Christ plus. Right? It's, it's, it's like Christ plus our, our works or Christ plus having to be a good mom or, or dad or Christ plus being a, a good student or Christ plus anything. We are totally dependent on the work of Christ alone. We're dependent on His life alone. We're dependent on His obedience alone, on His death alone, and His resurrection alone. Faith is a dependence on God to do what only God can do. The good news is that what's required is not a great faith, but a great Savior. 
you can have the weakest faith. Jesus said you can have faith as small as a mustard seed. If, if you drop a mustard seed on the floor, it take you a long time to find it, right? Especially in the grass. You can have faith that small. What's being called for is not great faith, but true faith. And true faith, as small as it may be, is enough to receive a great Savior. Joel Beakey wrote, Faith is not our rock. Christ is our rock. We do not get faith by having faith in our faith or by looking to faith, but by looking to Christ. Looking to Christ is faith. Far too often, we are prone to look at the quality of our faith or the quality of our conviction of sin, the the quality of our repentance, the quality of our love for the brothers or for confirmation of our justification, forgetting that it is Christ alone who saves by grace-given faith alone. Listen, the weakest faith, as long as it is true, doesn't just receive some of Christ, but, but all of Christ. So some of you today need to repent of counterfeit faith. God's calling you to a deeper faith. Some might need to repent of trying to add your works to what Christ has accomplished. Call out to Jesus for mercy and for faith and cry out for even the tiniest of faith and you will have all of Jesus. All of who He is. All of God's righteousness will be yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You know our weaknesses. You know our struggles. You know our sin and our unbelief and our struggles with faith. And we so often dilute faith or we add to faith or we try to add to your works. But in reality, Lord, we can't add to your work at all. Your work is perfect. It's our faith that is weak. Lord Jesus, in your mercy and in your grace, in your tenderness, give us true faith. We might have weak faith. The quality of our faith might waver. It might not be anything we can brag about. Lord, may we have a true faith in You. A great Savior. Who, Though we might have great sin, You have greater grace. Though we might go wayward greatly, You have greater mercy. May our faith Our true faith be in You. Give us true faith. Because You are the possessor and giver of all all faith. And it's in Your name that we pray.